Today's text is Ezra chapter 4. The book of Ezra chapter 4. Now before we get to it, uh, we have a little unfinished business in chapter 3. Namely verses 11 through 13. If you were here last Sunday, you will recall that the remnant... Uh, those Israelites who had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem had gathered as one man to the city of Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the altar, and they had laid the foundation for the temple, and they were offering up sacrifices in accordance with the law of Moses, celebrating the Feast of Booths. Uh, Everything's going well. And then there is this response, this twofold response described in verses 11 through 13 to the laying of the temple's foundation. And so imagine the scene, if you can, use your sanctified imagination. Uh, you have this group of 40,000 people or so at the city of Jerusalem. They've been there for several months, and they are worshiping, they're praising God, they're sacrificing. And finally, the the temple's foundation has been established. Twofold response. The first response is seen in verse 11. Uh, Some of them are overcome with joy. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 11. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Clear enough? So there you have it, the foundation of the temple sitting there before them. And you have this collective group over here who are pretty excited, enthusiastic, overcome with joy, praising God. But there's a second response. There's a group over here. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house, as a reference to the first temple, a reference to Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So those who had seen and could remember that house, what's their response? Wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So over here you have this one group shouting aloud for joy, overcome with joy, praising God. And then you have the second group over here, overcome with sorrow, weeping. And and the division is such that it's impossible to distinguish between the two. Verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout over here from the sound of the people's weeping over here. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Are you getting the idea? Can you picture the scene? It's done. There's the foundation, good times. And yet now there's this twofold response, overcome with joy, overcome with sorrow, praising God, uh, weeping, weeping. Uh, Here's the question I just want us to ponder briefly. It's this. Is their sorrow legitimate? It's a good question. This is a good question. Is their sorrow legitimate? No. This group has a skewed perspective of history. They're thinking back, and what comparison are they making? We remember Solomon's temple. Ooh, 
Talk about glorious. There's Zebedee over there, or Zebediah, and he's all excited that this foundation has been laid. Oh, that poor, misinformed fool. If only he could remember what we remember. If only he had seen what we had seen. Oh, the glory of Solomon's temple. And now all we have is this pathetic foundation laid, and as a result, they weep. Their sorrow is illegitimate because it is a skewed perspective of the past. As they thought back to Solomon's temple in all its grandeur, they also should have remembered the state of the nation. That although prior to the Babylonian invasion, yes, Solomon's temple stood there in all its glory, God had long departed from the temple. He wasn't there. The glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. And Israel was an apostate nation. Israel was riddled with apostasy, idolatry, immorality, suffering from social chaos. Interesting. They don't remember any of that. They don't recall what they were. They don't recall their sin and their rebellion. What do they recall? Oh, we used to have a rather magnificent building standing here. And now all we've got is this rather small, insignificant foundation. The lesson I want us to take from this, very important, it actually comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 10. Listen carefully to this verse. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Uh, I've said it, and I've heard it, oh, for the good old days. You ever heard that one? There is no such thing as the good old days. There is no such thing. The good old days we always defined through a very skewed lens. We remember certain things. And we define that those days, therefore, as the good old days in comparison with these days. But it's actually far from the truth and not a reflection of reality. I've said it. I've heard it. I've heard it. I remember on one occasion because it was particularly discouraging and depressing I was, I was preaching on Prince Edward Island in the Maritimes. This is 10 years ago. And uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, pretty straightforward and simple. And after the, after the service, this older gentleman brother um, uh, came to me. He said, not bad, but not like in the good old days. <laughs> oh, how deflated. <laughs> what, I'll tell you. Oh, for patience. Test of patience right there, I'll tell you. I've heard it, and I've said it. When I first started studying the Puritans about 12 years ago, I fell into this delirious state of mind in that if only we could resurrect that era. And then the more I studied, the more I realized they had some pretty big warts. And we wouldn't want to make the same mistakes that they made. As a matter of fact, yes, there were some good things going on and some things we could learn, but there was a whole lot of nonsense and confusion going on as well. And so I've been on the one side, I've heard it. I've been on the other side, idealizing the past. Oh, if only we could go back. If only it were like that again today. I've heard it and I've said it, and the result of both is what? It's a form of discouragement, isn't it? It's downright paralyzing. When we, when we idealize the past, we paralyze ourselves in the present. When we idealize the past, we discourage others in the present. When we become enamored with a romanticized view of the past, we suffer from inertia 
and uh, inability to act in the present. Oh, what a lesson we must take to heart. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Should we learn from the past? We certainly should. What's that saying? He who doesn't study the past is deemed to repeat it. Yes, we study the past. I'm all for studying history. Are there things we can learn from the past? Definitely. Are there things we we must learn from the past? Absolutely. But we do not fall into that idealized, romanticized idea of what it was in days gone by, and we look at it through a, a skewed, distorted, historical lens. That's what these people right here are suffering from. They see the foundation. What do they remember? A big building, Solomon's temple. What have they forgotten? They were an apostate nation. And there was nothing to celebrate looking back as to what they were before the living God prior to the Babylonian invasion. That's it for chapter 3. Our business this morning is chapter 4. Are you still with me? So turn with me, if you're not already there, to the book of Ezra. And follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of the fourth chapter. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, that's another name for Xerxes, king of Persia, in the beginning of his reign, They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehom, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehom, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting, and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers." You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. 
The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so in the fourth, the third chapter, things seem to be going well. And then in the first verse of chapter 4, something happens. Uh, news of what the remnant are doing. News of what these Jews, these Israelites who have return from Babylon to Jerusalem, what they're up to. Uh, They are rebuilding the temple. They have actually laid the foundation of the temple. Uh, News spreads. Every news agency picks up. This is big news. Word spreads throughout the land. And all of a sudden, right there, the first phrase in the first verse of chapter 4, the adversaries, enemies of Judah and Benjamin, they heard it. They heard it. And immediately, what are the remnant faced with? Opposition. Now, the question we need to consider at the outset is this. Who, uh, who are these people? Uh, who are these adversaries? The answer is found in the second verse. Second half of the verse. They state, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So who are these people? They are those who had been deported from foreign lands by the king of Assyria and transplanted in the land of Israel. Now, we... They are referring to an event that had happened 150 years prior to this. They're going back in time. They're turning black back the clock. Uh, You know the history, they're saying to the remnant. You know the history. Uh, You know that 150 years ago, 722 B.C., Assyria invaded northern Israel, the northern kingdom. And you know that the king of Assyria had a very simple policy for subjugating the peoples whom he conquered. The policy was this. He would deport them to other places and then deport people from other places into their land. And in that way, detach them from their land, detach them from their religion, detach them from their culture, and in that way, make it much easier to govern them. And so you know that's what happened way back when. This king of Assyria swooped through, destroyed Samaria, destroyed the northern kingdom, took the surviving Israelites away into captivity, never to return. And at that time, he brought us. And we came from all over the place. 
And, and just as he defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, he defeated our homelands. And he deported us from our homelands into this land, and we are now the descendants of those whom that king brought here. We have an interesting story concerning this group in 2 Kings 17 when they first appear. And when the king of Assyria first moves these people into that region of northern Israel, we read that they are, they, they, they're idolatrous, and as a result, God sends lions among them. Very fascinating narrative. 2 Kings 17, I think it is. He sends lions among them to punish them for their idolatry. Do you know what they do? Out of fear, they contact the king of Assyria, explain their predicament, and they ask him to send one of the priests, a couple of Levites. Send somebody back who can tell us how to worship the God of this land. And so the king of Assyria does. And these inhabitants, they begin to adopt segments, portions, parts of the Israelite religion in an attempt to appease God. And yet we read that they feared God, that is, they feared him because they, they, they viewed him as, as a threat, someone who threatened their well-being, but at the same time, they served their own gods. And so what evolves in the northern kingdom, its capital being Samaria, is what we call syncretism. You heard that fancy word before? Syncretism simply means this. It is, it is a melting together, absorbing together various religious beliefs and practices from different sources. So you take a little bit from over here. Yeah, I like that. I'll take that from there. And I'll take a couple of things from here. And I'll kind of push it all together and create something new. That's called syncretism. And that is what the northern kingdom becomes. Now, let me just insert a thought here. That northern kingdom and the people from that kingdom, they become known as whom? Samaritans. Does that shed some light on the New Testament? Oof. Does that shed some light on the story of the good Samaritan? Uh, the Samaritan woman by the well? And, and how those stories, how, how the Jews must have despised the Lord Jesus as he uttered those stories concerning their arch enemies, the Samaritans. It sheds some light as it Acts chapter 8 when Philip goes where to preach the gospel? Into the land of Samaria. And he's immediately followed by the apostles Peter and John. Why? Because the gospel starts in Jerusalem, Judea, and then it goes where? To Samaria. And then it goes where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the history of Samaria. This is the history of these peoples. And these peoples now come to this remnant, Jews, Israelites, who've come back and say, Hey, long time no see. How are things in Babylon? And, uh, and they make a proposal. But behind their proposal stands what? Their opposition to the work of the Lord. Because at heart, they, are, they suffer from syncretism. And therefore, they are adversaries to the true worship of God and to the rebuilding of God's house. Now, they adopt a threefold methodology. They have a three-pronged attack. They employ, let's say, three methods. First of all, this comes out in verses 2 and 3. They seek to deceive the remnant. Verse 2, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households. This is the last thing the Jews ever expected to hear. 
the Jews expected to hear a threat of violence and invasion and opposition, but these, these men actually offer an olive branch, but they're being deceptive. They approach Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and say to them, notice three things and what they say in the rest of verse 2. Firstly, notice their proposal. Let us build with you. You've been gone a long time. And you're back. Praise God. And you're rebuilding the temple. Praise God. Well, we're here to extend the right hand. We're here to offer whatever we can to help you rebuild. That's their proposal. They don't leave it at that. Notice, secondly, their profession. For, that is because, we worship your God as you do. What are they saying? What are they hinting at? There's no difference between you and us. We're exactly the same. We're brothers. We worship the same God. We serve the same God. Therefore, we want to participate. Let us participate. Let us help you in rebuilding the temple of God. And now they furnish, thirdly, some proof. And so you have a proposal. Let us build with you. You have a profession to back up their proposal For we worship your God as you do. And now proof, you want proof? And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So there's there's conformity. Uh, We have the same history. We have the same goals. We have the same aspirations. We want to help in the rebuilding of the temple. Because we worship the same God. You might be a little dubious, but just think about it. We've been sacrificing to that God for over a hundred years. But they are seeking to deceive the remnant. The remnant are wise to it. Look at the response in the third verse. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, Oh, pretty arrogant, isn't it? Look what they say. How intolerant of them. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The Jews know who these people are. The Jews know who these people really worship. The Jews know, they understand at this point the danger of syncretism. Why? Because they have been riddled by it in their own history. The history of the nation of Israel from Sinai right up to the time of the Babylonian deportation is a history of syncretism where they play the harlot with all the nations around them and they incorporate parts and portions of the worship of all these nations into the worship of Yahweh the Lord. They know what syncretism is because if anybody, anybody was good at syncretism, it was the nation of Israel. And so they recognize it in these people. And they understand who they are and who they really worship and what they're all about. And you can imagine what a temptation it must have been for them. I mean, these Jews that are a relatively small group, they know what these people really think of them. They know there's the threat of attack and opposition. They're constantly looking over their shoulder, wondering what's going to happen. And this must have posed a real temptation. Well, maybe this is of the Lord. Maybe these people have changed their ways. They seem awfully sincere, and uh, we could sure use the help. Uh, They're skilled. They have a a set and established labor force. 
What harm could it possibly do by incorporating them in and including them in the reconstruction of the temple of the Lord? No, they understand the danger. They understand the danger it would impose upon them insofar as it comes to the true worship of the true God, and so their rebuke is pointed. No misunderstanding here. No opportunity for misinterpretation. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. So there's the end of their first strategy. They seek to deceive the remnant, but they employ a second method. comes out in verse 4. They seek to discourage the remnant. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. How? We don't know for certain. Uh, That last phrase, they were afraid to build, I think think we're safe to reason from that, that the inhabitants of the land, their adversaries, who just a moment ago had offered to help them, when that offer was rejected outright, uh, they begin to do what? Intimidate the people. Yeah, go ahead and build it. Give us something to knock down. Go ahead and build it. It'll give us something to burn. And so there is this threat of violence, this threat of attack, whereby they seek to discourage the remnant, making them afraid to build. And then there's a third attack, a third methodology. It comes out in the fifth verse. They seek to discredit the remnant. Verse 5. What did they do, the people of the land? They bribed counselors. They hired lobbyists, to use a contemporary definition, understand. That's what they do. They hire lobbyists. They bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so they have lobbyists back in Persia who have access to the king, and they begin to write letters. And in those letters, they defame this remnant. They utter lies concerning this remnant. They seek to portray the remnant in a less than favorable light before the king of Persia, and hoping that the king of Persia would put an end to the work. That is their threefold strategy. They seek to deceive the remnant. They seek to discourage the remnant. They seek to discredit the remnant. Now, something you're going to have to really pay attention here. I invite you to focus because it gets very tricky. The text gets very tricky at this point, verse 6. Because essentially what we now have from verse 6, you're listening, this is tricky, all the way through to almost the end of the chapter, verse 23, is a parenthesis. A parenthesis. This parenthesis interrupts the chronology of events, chronological order as things happen. And so look again. This, this, I hope this makes sense. Look again in verse 5. These counselors, what do they do? They, they seek to frustrate the rebuilding of the, of the temple. And when do they do this? All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then in verse 6, we all of a sudden read, of the reign of whom? Ahasuerus, who is Xerxes. And then in the following verses, we read of another king of Persia, Artaxerxes. What's going on here? Okay, we, we need to grasp, we need to understand. The author, in all likelihood of this book, is Ezra, a scribe. But the events in the book encompass a period of 100 years. Well, Ezra wasn't alive all that time. 
As a matter of fact, Ezra lives toward the end of that period of time, toward the end of the hundred years. And so Ezra is writing this book from the perspective of what? History. And up until the end of, of chapter 6, he is, he is describing for the people of his day, almost 80 years later, he's describing for the people of his day what had happened in the past. And he's reminding them of how the remnant had come from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's reminding them of how the remnant had worshipped God. He's reminding them of how the remnant had laid the foundation of the temple. He's reminding them of how the remnant suffered terrible opposition. And then all of a sudden what he does in verses 6 through 23 is he shifts to his own present. Did I lose anybody there? And he says, you want an example of what I mean? See, all that took place back in the reigns of Cyrus and Darius. But let me give an example of which we're all familiar the audience to whom he's writing in his day. He says, it's just like in our own day, during the reigns of Xerxes and Artaxerxes, as we've sought to rebuild the city. The focus is no longer on the temple. The temple's already rebuilt by Ezra's day. As we've sought to rebuild the city and the city's wall, guess what? We've experienced opposition. We know what this is all about. Because letters have flown fast and furious from, 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 from the land back to the king of Persia, Xerxes. And also in the days of Artaxerxes. And so you can empathize. You know what I'm talking about. As I, as I look back and explain what had happened to our forefathers and the opposition that they experienced and these counselors who were hired against them and how they were defamed before the king of Persia, you know exactly what I'm talking about because the same thing's going on right now in our own day. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but did, well, maybe I will. Did that make sense? Are you getting it? He's writing chapters 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra are current events as far as Ezra is concerned. That's when he lives. Chapters 1 through 6 are history as he looks back. And so in verses 6 through 23, he is just furnishing an immediate example for his immediate audience so that they can enter into and understand precisely what their forefathers had gone through. He's furnished the example. He returns to the chronology of events in verse 24. What is the result? Back in that day, to that opposition, those who deceived the remnant, discouraged the remnant, discredited the remnant. What was the result back then? Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of of Darius, king of Persia. And so we have great things in chapter 3. Great beginnings. And then in chapter 4, storm clouds gathering on the horizon. Adversaries gathering. Those who oppose the rebuilding of God's house. We have their threefold strategy. We have the people of God increasingly being overcome by fear. Overrun by discouragement, and the day comes, what happens? They simply walk away. And the work on the Lord's house in Jerusalem stopped. Now what I want to take from all that this day for us, and this is going to lead us to the Lord's table, are four lessons, uh, truths, uses, points of application that we derive from this text. I'm focusing mainly on verses 1 through 5 
and then verse 24. First lesson is this. These verses provide a reality check. I'll explain that. These verses provide a reality check. That's actually the intent of the chapter. Again, Ezra is writing in his day. He is writing to people who are rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the city. People who are, who are experiencing opposition. People who, as a result, are experiencing discouragement. And people who, as a result, are in danger of walking away from the work, that which God had called them to do. So they're in danger of just walking away. Why? They're discouraged. Why? Because of the opposition. That is the, is the group to whom he is writing. In this chapter, what is he doing? He is forcing them to look back a hundred years earlier. And what is he demonstrating for them? Your forefathers went through exactly the same thing. As a matter of fact, friends, those to whom he's writing, the past 100 years can only be described under one word, using one word, opposition. This is a reality check to people who have become discouraged because of opposition. Ezra's message to them is, what what are you surprised about? Why are you shocked? Why is this such an issue for you? Why are you making such a big deal out of this? Why is the sky falling just because of this opposition? Understand, brothers and sisters, it has always been like this. This is nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. God's people have always, always, continually throughout their history been the object of vehement opposition. This is, my friends, a reality check. C.S. Lewis, Screw Tape Letters. I'm sure many of us have read that book. In which an older demon counsels a younger demon as to how to tempt believers. There's a statement, powerful statement in that book. It's as follows, by way of a question, the older demon to the younger demon, have you tried discouragement? Because it always works. Have you tried discouragement? Because it always works. Oh, we need a reality check. We get discouraged so easily, don't we? I get discouraged so easily. We get discouraged at the, at the slightest sign of opposition. We get discouraged at a slight, the first beginnings when things aren't going our ways and aren't working out exactly as we planned. And, and, and think all our dreams just aren't coming true and things just aren't happening as we envision them. And, and there seems to be opposition after opposition, stumbling block after stumbling block, closed door after closed door, insurmountable obstacle after insurmountable obstacle. We need a reality check, brothers and sisters. That is the Christian life. That is what we are called to. We are called to pick up our cross. We are called to live a difficult life. We are called to faithfulness in the midst of a difficult life. And understand, it has always been this way for God's people. And as it has always been this way for God's people, equally true, God has always carried His people through opposition. And how we need to remind ourselves of that daily. I'm preaching to myself. You may have noticed that already. I wake up in the morning. I get discouraged over the slightest thing. It just ruins my day. Oh, something just doesn't happen. That's not, that didn't happen as I planned it to happen. 
and I'm thinking about this and mulling over that and worrying about this, and there are problems on the horizon, and I'm anticipating them all. And somehow I think I'm, I'm unique. Somehow I think this is a novelty. How silly of me. The need for a daily reality check. We are called to pick up our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Second lesson is this. These verses provide a stern rebuke. They provide a stern rebuke. Not by anything that is said, that is visible in the text. The rebuke actually arises from what isn't said. There's the foundation laid. This remnant, they know how God worked in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, permitting them to return. They know how God has provided for all of their needs. They know how God has helped them thus far. And now these adversaries gather, they, they, they oppose the Lord's work, and, and, and what's the result? They begin to walk away. What isn't mentioned in this text? Let me answer that by way of a question. Why don't they pray? Why don't they pray? Why don't they fall on their knees and beg for God's help? Collectively, individually, as families. Why aren't they prostrating themselves before this God who worked in the heart of a pagan king, bringing the remnant back to Jerusalem, who has manifested himself as all-powerful, who has called them and equipped them for this great work of rebuilding the temple. When the opposition arises, when the obstacles appear, when the problems begin to mount one on top of the other, why aren't the remnant face down on the earth crying out to God for help? This text is a stern rebuke. I quoted from this hymn a couple Sundays ago. Let me quote it again. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That is a stern rebuke. The third lesson in this text is as follows. These verses provide a dire warning, a dire warning, comes out of the second verse. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. Syncretism has always posed one of the greatest threats in the history of God's people, and nothing is different today. Syncretism is one of the greatest threats facing today's church. We live in a society, we live in a culture in which comparative religion reigns supreme. What do we mean by comparative religion? We mean God is sitting at the top of a mountain, and all the world's religions invariably, inevitably, at some point, work their way, wind their way, find their way, some quicker than others, and perhaps some a little more advanced than others, but they all eventually get to the top. This is the day of comparative religion in which the unique and exclusive claims of Christ are looked upon with absolute disdain. Disdain. 
And this is a dire warning that we dare not adopt that kind of thinking. That we dare not adopt that kind of mentality that Christianity and the Lord Jesus Christ is merely one of many avenues that ultimately lead to God. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his sacrifice at Calvary's cross, is the only atonement for sin. Therefore, he is the only hope of salvation. And the fourth lesson, as we conclude, is this. These verses provide a helpful reminder. What should the remnant have done? They should have prostrated themselves before a great God and cried out for help. And they should have stuck to the foundation. They should have continued to build. They should have stayed close to the foundation. Now, we, friends, we aren't building a physical structure. We are involved by God's Spirit in the building and construction of a spiritual structure, the body of Christ, the church of the living God. But just as the temple had a sure and certain foundation in the Old Testament, the temple of the living God today has a sure and certain foundation, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. How we must stay close to, riveted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I sought to emphasize this this past weekend, Friday night. We had the discipleship now, and a number of the youth here, and a number of of parents and adults had a good time together. And on Friday night, I, 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 I labored away at this. And let me just labor away at, again at it. As we, seek of, as, we, as we contemplate the Lord Jesus and consider the fact that he is the foundation of the church, he is the, he is the foundation stone, how pivotal, how, how important for us to always keep in view the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that is foundational the church, foundational to life, foundational to ministry. And I encouraged our youth on Friday night to, to meditate upon, never lose sight of, memorize two sentences, and I'm going to repeat them now here for everyone. They're as follows. To, to rest in Christ, to be riveted in Christ, to stay close to the foundation is to take these two truths to heart. Number one, God treats me You ready for this? God treats me as if I had lived Christ's life. You got it? That's truth number one. Truth number two two is this. God treated Christ as if he had lived my life. That, my friend, is the foundation. That God, right now at this moment, by virtue of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I turn away from my works, anything I think I've ever done to please God, and I rest in the Lord Jesus alone. And I understand this simple truth, that right now God treats me as if I had lived Christ's life. Meaning, he takes Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect obedience, and he reckons it to me. On what basis? Because God has already treated Christ as if he had lived my life at Calvary's cross, where my sin and iniquity and transgression and all my filth was imputed to him, and he bore the penalty for it in full. Friend, stay close to the foundation. Do not veer from the foundation. Do not wander away 
from the foundation. For the Lord Jesus Christ alone is our all in all. Our God enthroned in glory above. Praise you for your word. And ask simply that you might speak to us by what we have heard this day. We pray that our faith might be enlarged to behold your glory in the Lord Jesus, to behold your glory in the gospel, these wonderful truths. And we pray that we would indeed rest in Christ alone. Perhaps there is some this day, our Father, you alone know, who are wavering and full with doubts and cares and burdens. And we pray that you would cut through the confusion, shine the light of your truth upon their hearts and comfort and encourage them. And perhaps, our Father, there are even some here who do not know your Son. They are building on a wrong foundation. We pray that you would show them the error of their way, convict them of their utter sinfulness, and show them that there is salvation alone in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.